what's up everybody? Welcome to FoundFlix. On this inning explain, we're looking at broadcast signal intrusion. Following a video archivist in the late 1990s who unearths a series of sinister pirate broadcasts and becomes obsessed with discovering the dark conspiracy behind them. I dug this one especially due to the kind of interesting hodgepodge of influences. Mainly it owes to conspiracy thrillers from the 70s, but it also makes use of modern day creepypastas as well as a healthy dash of horror. The horror especially comes in relation to the intrusions as they are are just plain creepy. It's also kind of cool as the story has some basis in history as it references some real life signal hacking from the past. The most predominant is most likely when someone interrupted a Chicago news broadcast donned in a Max Headroom mask. I just like how they also added in this real life element and it really adds to the whole crazy conspiracy that unfolds. You're like, is it real or what? I don't know. The story in this one twists and turns into a ton of different directions and it really feels like when it answers one question, a thousand more are asked and many are left without resolution. This is also the case with the extremely abrupt ending that really leaves us up in the air and with no conclusion. I can see why this would be frustrating, but we'll see it is actually vital when we piece together the story's bigger purpose. So let's check out Broadcast Signal Intrusion, breaking down the story's many twists and turns, just what the intrusions are all about, as well as explaining the very abrupt ending that leaves us hungry for answers. We first meet film archivist James passed out at his job. A test tone wakes him up along with a message indicating there is a broadcast signal intrusion. He gets a tape out and organizes it into another pile, seeming that his job is going through vast amount of footage in search of these intrusions. Accompanied by a sweet trumpet and sad piano film noir style score, he wanders the streets of Chicago back in the old days of 1999. At his apartment, he has more equipment and tapes everywhere and has one in particular that he's watching. It's of a girl out in the street who jokes with him to stop filming. Then there's a flash of an upside down shot of a couple running in a field. She stops right at the edge of a forest as a heavy rain rolls in. He tentatively picks up a camera and starts to film as she begins to sway. She finally starts to turn back to face him, only seeing the peak of a strange woman's mask. While it may not be abundantly clear just yet, this woman on the tape is his wife Hannah, who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. James's entire journey is spurned on by not knowing knowing what happened. It also seems that his memory of her is starting to fade a bit, hence being unable to see her face. He's starting to forget what she looked like. It seems James has a bit of a reputation as a camera repairman, as a guy Chester comes to pick up some work. When going to grab a new pen, Chester lets himself in and goes right for his Pixel Vision camera with his wife's tape, telling him he has to have it. But of course, James is not willing to let the camera go, as then he can't see the tape or, in a way, his wife anymore. James is seen attending several group sessions, presumably of others who have lost loved ones just like him. We see him scratching at a tattoo of a date on his arm as a woman Nora describes her current feelings. She describes being stuck in a free fall dream that she couldn't wake up from and says that someday she could feel herself slipping. The people, sidewalks, all of that isn't really there, but all just figments of her mind. But now she understands there is no sense to be made, but does consider that perhaps she still hasn't looked hard enough. This establishes a very important thematic base to our story. Nora has lost someone just like James, and this has affected her greatly in search of any kind of resolution, but now she understands that things will never really reach a conclusion. No answers will truly come. And that's a whole other thing she and, well, James also have to deal with. After the meeting, James asked Nora about her husband. Did he leave her anything like a note? She says that for the longest time, she was convinced that she simply couldn't find it. One would just appear one day and explain everything. It never did, she sighs wistfully. About to leave, she shouts after, it gets 
it's easier. He doesn't understand. And she shrugs, eh, it's just something people say, which is ultimately meaningless, just a platitude to make the mourner feel better. Back at work, he scans through the archives and makes his way through more tapes. One kicks on to a local news broadcast featuring an interview with some guy rambling about the free market. As he drones on, suddenly static takes over the image. It cuts to a man in that strange woman's mask from his dream earlier. They open their mouth, uttering all kinds of strange garbled noises. They get more intense and scream in a modulated tone. Just as suddenly, it fades away and goes right back to the interview, leaving us Turtle James wondering what the fuck that was. He takes the tape home for a closer inspection, rewinding back and forth over the intrusion. It quickly gets stuck, and after ejecting it, see it has become completely unspooled. He then discovers news stories from the time covering what he saw. Someone hacked into the signal. They briefly and illegally overrode the broadcast and are now under investigation from the FCC. It was said to be the first piracy of its kind. He then learns a week later that the pirate struck again, this time during the airing of a sci-fi show, Don Kronos. This sends James to track down the appropriate tape from the archives, yet when he comes to where it should be, the tape is conspicuously missing. He leaves a note for his never-seen supervisor asking about the tape and gets a response the next day, telling him to leave it alone and move on. He does not back down and makes a call regarding the episode. When put on hold, he notices a suspicious hooded figure watching him from across the street. The person on the phone tells him he's not the first to ask about the tape, but to his frustration, they do not have a copy. It was taken by the FCC. And by the way, he's actually supposed to report anyone immediately to the FBI that inquires about it. And James quickly hangs up. Phew, that was close. He stares back across the street and the person is gone. James looking a bit shaken up. So he reaches out to another potential source, the tech obsessed guy, Chester. He's able to find the episode on a beta tape and don't worry, he brought along his own player. They pop it on and Don Kronos is a clear riff on Doctor Who, a charmingly low budget sci-fi romp. The duo on screen discuss the dangers of what the doctor is attempting. What he's doing can't be good for his health or peace of mind. Death is the end, he's told. He must accept that. Hmm. Sounds appropriate to somebody else, maybe, named James. Before they can continue, the signal is interrupted. The masked person is back, garbling weird noises, and then starts to move in a very stiff robotic fashion, making us wonder if it's a person in a mask or android of some kind. They keep moving in a jittery way, and then start babbling again, and their fingers bend backwards looking like they're made of plastic. They scream, and stuff starts streaming from their mouth, and it blips away back to the good doctor. Woo! Chester assumes this is why James wanted to see the tape, and he knows all about the intrusions. What's now called the Sally Sparks incident. He refers to it as the creepiest unsolved mystery hack of all time. The strange character was inspired by an 80s sitcom called Stepbot about a widow scientist who makes a robot wife to help take care of his five adopted kids. An obvious take on the real life small wonder, which is actually even creepier than anything in this movie. Look it up. <laughs> 15 years later, the perpetrator was never caught, although there are some compelling theories on the boards. That's right, BBS boards, the message boards that were the larva stages of the internet we know today. James understands this must make the tape valuable, and Chester isn't interested in money, instead suggesting a trade. He gets to take his pixel vision in exchange for the tape and player. Chester starts to ask about the girl on the tape, but James immediately shuts him down, excusing that he has to go to work. There, he digs into the Chicago BBS to investigate further. There's mention of another intrusion in Florida from a hacker dubbed the Night Pirate. He hacked into the signal with a message to 
not believe their lies. He was caught after all. And then their discussion starts turning to Sally Sparks. No suspects, the other person replies. He then discovers who from the FCC wrote the report on the case, a Dr. Lithgow, giving him another substantial lead. Lithgow is prickly when he brings up the report, grumbling that he is not the first to seek it out. He doesn't have it either, and the only way to get a copy is via a form that could never get fulfilled. He does at least give him a bit more info on the case. These intrusions are extremely rare. There's only been 10 in the last 40 years, and the Sal E. Sparks incidents are the only ones that remain unsolved. James brings up the footage, and Lithgow agrees that it definitely gets under your skin. They couldn't figure out what exactly they were watching. Was it a joke or a prank or what? After the second intrusion, the FBI got involved, but according to a prevailing theory, they actually put pressure on the press to not report on the incident, as they were worried there could be subliminal messages hidden in the broadcast. James is confused, as the only sound is just strange static, but he presses into his conspiratorial side. It sure sounds like it, eh? There were rumors of a third intrusion several years later, but by then they had all but given up on the investigation. If there was indeed a third incident, it would have followed a particular pattern. Each hack targeted a smaller audience, what's called narrow casting. It started at network level, then down to public broadcast, then what's next, he asks. It must be cable access, James guesses correctly. Lithgow brings up a note he has in reference to the date of November 23rd, 1996. James jots it down and then realizes it's the day before the tattoo on his wrist, which must be the day that Hannah went missing. James looks up out the window to some feet walking by, and oddly the doctor has disappeared. As he remembers flashes of his wife, his eye starts to twitch. This time after his meeting, he takes Nora up on her offer of a cigarette, and she casually brings up a barbecue this weekend, and suggests that he tag along as her date. He shows off his wedding band, and she shows off her own. She laughs, me too, but they're gone now. They have to keep living their lives. But James can't even consider this notion, and stammers that he's gotta get going. At work, there's a warning note from his boss, as he hasn't gotten any work done the past week, but he's unbothered and goes right back to the intrusion. He dials in with an audio mixer, and tries to modulate the signals into something potentially intelligible. He keeps fiddling with the knobs, and slows it down, listening intently. I fix them, it says quickly, in a gravelly voice, I fix them all. He stares at the frame, trying to piece together what it all could mean. He's then startled by the sound of something falling behind him, and goes to check it out. He hears footsteps coming from the dark shelves, and then someone scurries by. Hearing a door slam, he runs out after, but there's nothing. As he walks home later, the camera starts swirling unsteadily, illustrating his increasingly paranoid state of mind. The intrusions then start invading his dreams. While alone in the dark, the TV then beeps on. Sally appears and utters James's name. He comes to a classic crime board on the wall, which initially was regarding Hannah's disappearance, but now has started to involve clues related to his new case. He scrubs through the other intrusion and snaps several stills on a camera to get a much more detailed look at the frame. When he gets a closer look, something gives him pause. There's what looks like another person in the room reflected in the window. Mmm. James seeks out Lithgow with his new information, getting nearly run right into with his car. He breathlessly explains that the room is actually a set. Someone built the place inside of somewhere else. That's why the figures seem to be so tall in the scale of the room. And then begs the question, why? And he shows off the face there in the window. Lithgow tempers all of his revelations. There was a years-long investigation into this, which turned up nothing. James points out not on the first incident, but there's no information at all on the third. He's convinced things like this don't happen by accident. It's for a reason. Lithgow considers, what if he is right? Does he want to be the guy who figures this all out? Yes, James states resolutely. His deepening obsession winds up costing James his job, coming to a note that he 
he's fired, along with the parting gift of a six-pack. Well, now he can focus completely on the case, and it's back on the boards. There he finds a frightening new layer to the case, a potential connection between the intrusions and missing girls. Before he can read more, his monitor is taken over and a message comes through. I know what you're looking for. An article pops on screen about a missing woman who disappeared the day before the first intrusion. A coincidence, they ponder. They then suggest the two meet, and James arrives at an address for an antique shop. He goes through what initially looks like a standard antique store, and then when entering the back room, comes to the hooded figure. They walk right by to his confusion, and he continues deeper into the strange building, as he then passes what looks like prison cells with numbers and everything on them, and descends down into the grimy basement. He overhears two men talking, something regarding a young girl with the mention of age 16, and no, she'll be waiting outside on the street. This makes us think the two are setting up some kind of deal in exchange for the girl, and the guy is all excited, nearly bumping right into James. He follows after the antique dealer as he enters into his office. When noticing him, he invites him to take a seat. So you came, he tells him cryptically, as though he was awaiting his arrival. He tosses down a folder that contains James's personal information. James wants to know how he got it, but he changes the subject to the intrusion investigation. He has access to the complete file, but James is still worried over how he knows everything about him. He interjects, don't you want to know what happened to those missing girls? Before both intrusions, a girl went missing the day before the broadcast. James writes off that he read all about the first girl. There's nothing connecting her to the tapes. The guy argues, sure, it looks like that, but it's not what you believe, is it? He also, like others James have talked to, have said others have been on the same quest before him. He's well aware that he's not the first, but he's confident that he'll be the last. The dealer presents him with a simple exchange. If he delivers a package for him, then he will provide him with the case files. James has no reason to trust him, but he is not going to turn back now. He makes his way to the address, and there meets a disheveled man, McAllister. He immediately opens the package and pulls out a note, reading, this is the man you're looking for. It sounds like McAllister has been researching the intrusions just like James, and over time, he has been essentially driven mad. He rants that the tapes are trying to tell him something. He's been looking into it for 11 years and has only gotten dead ends. James accuses him of setting him up, but he disagrees. This is a warning to the others that are curious like him. He spits for him to stop now, before it's too late. James mumbles that it already is. He shrieks, they're everywhere, man, and bolts from the scene. Okay, bye, nice meeting you. Jeez. Back at his apartment, he finds the door slightly cracked, and the dealer was good on his word after all, finding a file there waiting for him. He pours over the pages, seeing everything on the case, and even the potentially connected missing girls. James thinks he's starting to get it all figured out, and rings the professor with his theory. He believes that the intrusions are actually confessions for taking the girls. To him, it all fits together. He stops mid-sentence, seeing the hooded figure there again, and Lithgow brings up that he knows about his wife, and expresses that he would have responded differently if he had known. And Lithgow warns him that grief can be tricky, but he's too far at this point, and thanks him for the help before hanging up. He walks off, and the hooded figure starts trailing him. He tries to lose them, but they keep close by. He then quickly ducks off into a bar, and she strolls casually in after, removing her hood and taking a seat near him. She snatches some cash from the tip jar, giving him a devilish grin, and orders them around with shots. He of course wants to know why she was following him, and she makes it into a kind of game. A shot for an answer. Them's the rules. It takes a few for her to seemingly admit the real reason, that she likes the control of stalking people. You have all the power. She can sense his loss, and brings up her own lost partner, Benjamin. Despite her initially being over the moon in the relationship, it doesn't sound like Ben was the best guy around, as she mentions something about underage girls found in his room. She got out of there five years ago, and now she's here, declaring that everything is fine. It sounds like she's kind of a vagabond hustler, 
divulging that her license doesn't have her accurate name, but says that her name is Alice. Although Brown has gotten him sick, and she conveniently helps escort him back to his place. Then he has another nightmare. The sound of static takes over and a glowing hand starts reaching over his back. He comes to in the morning, seeing Alice watching the intrusions and taking notes. She's all, whoa, you were not lying about this stuff. And he mentions that he is still in search of that elusive third tape. Seeing an opportunity, she offers to help him, but he declines as he prefers to work alone. So she plays her cards, asking what the numbers mean. He's certain that he knows the tapes inside and out, yet when she plays it back, there is definite rhythmic beeping amongst the signal. She recognizes it as Morse code. He's astonished. Who would know that outside of sailors or telegraph operators? She leans back with a knowing smile. Yep, she can decode it, but he'll have to agree to the deal of being his sidekick for a bit. She asks if he's going to call the number, but James tells her that he had to destroy his phone. You never know who's listening, you know? So on a payphone, he dials a number, hearing similar weird static and groaning noises on the message until it clicks off. Well, not too much help there, really. Taking in the crime board again, he's interrupted by a loud knock at the door. It's his neighbor with a phone call for him. We don't hear what's said, but he quickly rushes outside of the alley. It's the creepy guy, McAllister, back for some more fun psycho ramblings. James is worried about his phone, but he points out it's a burner phone and strangely suggests to burn her, assumedly meaning Alice, saying that she won't be there when he needs her most. He's also changed his tune a bit from before regarding the investigation, now suggesting if he's going to do this, go all the way and follow the tapes. And he loses it, ranting again that they're everywhere. He keeps screeching insanely as Alice descends the stairs. He looks over to her when she steps outside. McAllister looks down to his feet, grumbling he just needs some sleep, and shockingly slits his own throat, blood gushing out as he collapses. They hurry to collect their things, as well as any evidence, and get a move on before anyone can find them. Outside, there are already police lights there, and they sneak off from the scene. His dreams continue to be intruded by Sally. This time, someone pulls out a switchblade and stabs her in the eye. He wakes up, and when seeing the room is empty, goes to the window, seeing Alice on the phone. She was actually calling to dig deeper into the phone number, and she was able to trace it down to a storage unit in Peoria. They later arrive at a nondescript storage unit facility, and she tells him to wait behind. She knows how to work this guy. After a quick chat, the man escorts him to the storage unit in question. All that's inside is a landline and answering machine. They give it a call, and it plays the same message, at least knowing that it is what they were looking for. According to the guy, it was first rented back in 1987. It's been paid every month without fail ever since, yet no one has shown up to check on it. He assumed that's why they were here. They're the only ones that have ever asked about it. At this moment, James realizes he has surpassed the others like him before on this trail. No one has made it this deep. Although as for who rented it, he cannot tell them due to legal obligations. The phone rings and James hands it over, both appearing disappointed on the way out. Yet strangely, despite moments earlier, the guy comes out and is suddenly happy to divulge the tenant's name, which makes us wonder who was on the phone and what they told him that changed his mind. He even apologizes for being rude and gives him the name Stephen Meyer. This new clue sends him spiraling into another direction, sticking out in front of Stephen's address in hopes that he will show up. While waiting, she probes a bit, asking James what he likes to do for fun. And James is immediately flustered and uncomfortable at the pretty simple question, mumbling about how he likes to fix cameras. She doesn't count that though as a hobby if he's getting paid for it. After telling a story about how she made silly radio shows as a kid, he spills about just how much this case has taken over his life. He can't remember anything from before he started the case. And she replies that sometimes we spend so long looking for answers that you forget the question. Well, that certainly sounds applicable to James's wacky journey so far. And he finally broaches the ever touchy subject of Hannah's disappearance and what little he really knows. He doesn't even know if she died, as he wasn't there, so he has no real memories, just pictures in his head. He can see an abandoned car, the Skyway Bridge, and an empty casket. 
Based on that, it sure sounds like she took her own life, but the point is he doesn't know for sure, hence his obsession on the matter. James starts losing his temper waiting for Steven, and right on cue, a man enters the building. They approach him after in the parking lot and tell him that they've been to a storage unit. He only sighs and flatly tells them to follow me. He leads them to the back of a house somewhere and down into a certifiably creepy basement. They explain what they found about the storage unit and his name. They just want to know why. I can promise you the detecting duo is not prepared for this guy's answer because it is long, giving us his entire backstory. His saga began way back when he was a young boy with a stutter. He blames this for making it difficult to get friends back in the 80s. What he did have were sweet, sweet bulletin boards, which to him were a dream. A bunch of outcast kids talking about phone hacking and old cartoons, but best of all, no one could hear his impediment. The boards were filled with high-level hackers that could break into anything in the country called freaking. Then he remembered one day back in 86, the boards lit up like never before. It was due to the infamous night pirate from Florida. He didn't see the tape for himself until the next year, which he got from another kid just like him. He watched it over and over to pick it apart in order to try and understand what it meant. His social circles then took an interesting turn when he had to do a presentation in class on something they liked outside of school, and naturally he took in the tape along with a VCR. He then went about teaching a room full of 14 year olds how to steal a TV signal, and guess what? He didn't even trip over his words even once. Word then spread of his presentation, eventually reaching the higher echelon of rich kids at the school. A group of them approached the boy with the desire to hack their own broadcast, just like the Night Pirate. They asked if he could, and of course he could, but it meant more to him because he was excited to be a part of something for once. He could do something that no one else could, and this was a kind of social currency for him. He calls the product of their work beautiful, and he worked hard to make it difficult to track down the tape's origins. Yet, he didn't think it would be any fun messing with people without a reward of some kind. Thusly, he inserted the Morse code phone number into the intrusion. The entire concept was his idea, including setting up the storage unit. Well, it looks like that mystery is finally solved until they hear strange rattling sounds from the floor above. They ask what it is, and he tells them none of their concern. Why, sure about that? Alice appears satisfied at the conclusion of the mystery, but James is unwilling to accept this, calling the guy a liar. He is adamant that he studied the tapes. There must be more to whoever made them than simply interrupting a signal, and brings up the missing girls. But the freaker has no idea what he's talking about. All he offers as far as more answers is to search into the three tapes. Again, with the mention of the missing tape, James pleads that he needs it, asking over and over about it. But in the end, he has no choice but to take his leave, feeling unsatisfied with the answers given. Now for a word from today's sponsor, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is a convenient and delicious meal delivery service that brings a wide variety of fresh recipes right to your door. If you want to try it out for yourself, go to hellofresh.com slash foundflix16 and use code foundflix16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. You know, I actually love to cook. My whole thought on the matter is, well, you gotta eat, so you might as well enjoy the process of getting it into your mouth. But it's not always easy to get all the ingredients you need, and then you gotta figure out what you're gonna cook. It honestly is a huge pain and total time suck. What's great about HelloFresh is that every box has everything you need all in one. No more stressful trips to the store or time-consuming meal planning. They also make it incredibly easy, and it takes no time at all to prepare, which is perfect for people on the go. It comes with step-by-step -step instructions, along with pictures that are easy to follow. It's also great when it comes to options, as HelloFresh has a ton of variety in their recipes with 50 weekly options. Anyone, regardless of diet specifications, is covered. So go to HelloFresh.com foundflix16 and use code foundflix16 for up to 16 free meals 
And three free gifts. And now a word from today's second sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is online therapy here to help you through life struggles and big moments. We can all relate to feeling stress and anxiety in the world today, as well as other personal trials like grief or even big positive changes can throw our lives into upheaval. There's only so much we can manage on our own, and sometimes you need someone else to talk to to help navigate these challenges. But with traditional therapy, there's also the difficulty of showing up in person and, of course, potentially being uncomfortable in the waiting room. With BetterHelp, there's a better way, as it's easy to get set up quickly with a licensed professional therapist from the comfort of home. You just answer a few questions, and within 48 hours, you're matched with a therapist. Is that easy? They also offer a variety of session styles you can do via live chat, phone call, or video call. Best of all, it's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and for those in need, they also offer financial aid. Visit betterhelp.com foundflix. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. As a special offer for Ending Explain listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com foundflix. Back at the motel, James is still a bundle of nerves, and they discuss parts of the story that still don't add up. Why keep paying for the unit all these years? if it was just a mess with people. She mentions, well, he did want to be found, and he did find him after all these years. You tracked him down and learned a story. Again to her, this is the end of their crazy ride, suggesting that he can let it go now. He gets livid, saying she's out of her mind. He's definitely not about to give up until he gets that third tape. He's convinced that this is the only part of the freaker story that was not a lie. She then gets quiet, and he realizes that unlike him, she did believe him. She stammers that she doesn't know for sure. Maybe he was telling the truth, and it was just a bunch of kids messing around. Maybe it was complete bullshit. The answer, frustratingly, still isn't quite clear. And it never will be. He has another nightmare, this time several gloved hands reaching out and grab all over him, covering his mouth, trying to kind of drag him into the darkness. He shoots awake, and their stuff has been strewn out all over the floor, and there's no sign of Alice. He checks the tape deck, and someone has yoinked his tape. He steps out, looking defeated, spotting a lone cigarette. Then he pulls something off his shoe, a card for the antique dealer. He makes a long trek back into the city and returns to the shop, but he's shocked to find the place is covered in crime scene tape and he's hit yet another dead end. He finds his place has been ransacked as well, even taking his precious Pixel Vision Hannah tape from its box. But he finds another tape left behind marked Hannah Ballet 96. He pops it in and Hannah takes the stage doing a graceful dance routine. Static rolls over the image and Sally is back vocalizing strangely. A hand rubs over the mask and the singing gets more distorted. There's a brief flash of what looks like a farm, and the hand starts ripping off the flesh, exposing a robot skeleton underneath. He rewinds back and spies a particular scar on the person's hand, which sends him to furiously fix his phone and dial the professor. He feverishly talks about the third tape. It can't be real, right? And the professor only gives him more vague potential answers, asking if he's ever heard of a 1983 Chevy Corvette. No, because they never existed, but several prototypes were made. Supposedly they were all destroyed, but there still could be some floating out there. However, only the most hardcore and dedicated snoopers would be able to ever track one down. Again, teasing the possibility that just because no one else has found it until now, it still could have been out there the whole time. He then poses the question back to him. Does a third tape exist? But the phone clicks to a recording. If you want to make a call, dial a number, implying this conversation was entirely in James's mind. He even pulls on the cord and it's not plugged in. I mean, what? He throws the phone away and rubs his face, worried that he really might be 
he's starting to lose it. However, as always seems to be the case, just when he's about to give up, there's a fresh lead to keep him going. He rewinds the tape back to that farm shot, and thanks to a magnifying glass, is able to make out the name on the mailbox. He looks half happy and alarmed at the same time at this latest clue. This could be what he was really looking for. Will this place have the answers that he seeks? He arrives at a remote farmhouse, hearing a moldy tune wafting from inside, implying someone must be home. He grabs a hammer just in case, and comes to the radio shutting it off. He surveys the room, noticing a cage as well as several computers. There's also a hat plopped on top of one PC, the very same that Alice was always wearing. Could this explain her sudden disappearance? Just then, footsteps approach from outside, and he comes face to face with some guy, Michael apparently. He notices the telltale scar on his hand from the video, and believes that he's finally found his man. The phone rings, and Michael drops his drink. In the moment of confusion, James makes his attack. He is victorious, and locks Michael up in the cage. He complains that this isn't right, and his arm is hurt, but James isn't interested, and puts on Hannah's tape for them to watch. He sniffs that he didn't do it, while James argues that he totally did. Michael continues rebuffing responsibility, causing James to lose his temper, pounding on the cage to answer the question. He then rubs in the whole taking girls thing, which the cage here certainly helps with backing up, and he screams for him to admit that he took those women, and her. So now he's fully convinced that Hannah's disappearance is connected to this ever-expanding conspiracy as well. He boasts that he connected the dots because he's smarter than him. He knows what he did. Michael weakly asks, what does he want from him? And he tells him that he wants to see the set. He dutifully leads him through the woods to another nearby building. There's a pile of stuff in the quarter, including what does look like walls from the set. He rummages through the stuff and even finds the Sally mask. Well, now that's definitely enough evidence for James, and he wants to know if it's all there. Because they're going to rebuild it. It's time for another tape. After putting things back together, James flips on some work lights, seeing as Michael tied up in a chair. He starts weirdly humming to himself and gets louder and more off-tune, and Michael's demeanor changes on a dime, getting frantic and crying that he doesn't want to be here, he didn't do anything, and then asks when will his dad be here. The intention with this character, I feel like, is to really make us question him. Is he suffering from some kind of learning disability, or is he a psycho? The line is definitely blurry here on purpose, but we know what James thinks on the matter, as he descends upon him and places the mask over his head. He has something for him to read, it's pretty much a direct confession, admitting his responsibility for the intrusions as well as the missing girls. He breaks down in tears, and James encourages him to keep going. The sooner you read, the sooner you'll understand. Promise? Michael asks him in an innocent tone, and James calmly tells him, I promise. Again, his demeanor changes, rubbing and tugging at the mask. He is suddenly much more confident and assured in his delivery. I killed them, I fixed them all, and this is my punishment, he plainly states. After they film the confession, James is next seen filling in a fresh hole in the ground, and I'm gonna wager that he killed Michael. Again, completely confident in his role as the killer in this conspiracy. He pauses for a moment to take all this in, as this also means that it appears James was able to get those answers he was so desperately in search of. Everything kind of wrapped up in a neat little package, really. Now he knows the full story, including Hannah being the incursion's final victim. It's all over, right? Not so fast. He loads up the trunk, including a tape labeled The Final Broadcast, seeing he's taken some souvenirs, including the Sally mask. About to get in the car, he's stopped by the phone again, ringing inside. Wait a minute, so who's on the phone then? I thought we saw this damn thing. It is not so simple, we'll see, as that theme from way back at the 
beginning, rears its head back to James now. Driving into the night, on the radio is actually the same episode of Doc Kronos from the tape. They are, as we recall, discussing the doctor's latest dangerous work. The doctor is warned that whatever he is doing isn't good for his health or his mind, and it could even damage his mind. The signal gets staticky, and it turns into the song Sally was singing in the broadcast. Immediately growing paranoid, he keeps looking into his rearview mirror and is distracted from the road. A woman comes out of nowhere and steps right in front of him. He crashes directly into her, now seeing that she resembles Sally Sparks. Just to really clarify this moment, when he first sees a jaywalker, it resembles a regular woman. Alice, in fact. But when he actually impacts it, it has mutated into Sally. It was really brief, but I was like, wait a minute. This is another big clue like the broadcast that we can't trust exactly what we were seeing. He approaches her motionless body, facing away, and reaches out a hand. She flips over, and it is indeed Sally. The eyes start robotically whirring and looks over to him. She then starts to scream insanely and goes haywire, glitching out and coughing up black liquid. James' head starts shaking at the sight, and that memory floods in of them in the rain. And now definitely notice he's also wearing the same jacket. More static takes over, and things are left on this admittedly very ambiguous note. So what does it all mean? How can we possibly answer all the many, many lingering questions and conveniences along James's journey for answers? You can't. That is kind of the whole point. As mentioned, there are so many instances where this case hits a snag, and out of left field, he gets another breadcrumb that sends him spiraling into a whole new direction. It's seemingly impossible because it is. What we're actually seeing is James increasingly falling into his own delusions. So much of what transpires is up for debate, as we are seeing everything from his subjective perspective. It all really is set up way at the beginning, like I said, with Nora's speech and how she dealt with her own husband's disappearance. She felt things falling away from her, people and the world itself all around her, kind of losing herself to that nagging feeling of not knowing what happened. She ultimately had to accept that the answers aren't always out there, and this of course also directly applies to James. His entire trajectory is spurned on by this desperation to uncover the mystery of Hannah's vanishing. It's that powerful drive that allows him to sink deeper and deeper into his delusions and harebrained conspiracies. He wants so badly for all this to be true, although he's also warned several times times along the way to be careful of letting this take him over, but James refuses to ever stop in his investigation. This feels most notable when they talk to the Freaker. This does provide a pretty reasonable explanation for the incursions and all that, and even Alice seems to accept that the case is concluded. But James once more is unable to accept this because it doesn't provide him with the answers he wants. And then conveniently, Alice disappears now that she's a dissenting voice in his quest. So he more or less creates the ultimate big bad, that way he can finally conclude things in his own way. But as said, in life we don't get those answers a lot of times, and that is the case for James. Also back to the Doc Kronos thing, messing with this kind of stuff could damage him physically as well as his mind, which the replay of the episode reminds us of at the end. That's also why the robot shows up at the end, things aren't done, and technically won't ever be until he is able to let Hannah go and accept that he won't ever know what happened. That's also why things end in the manner they do with a serious cliffhanger. Just like James, we are left without any real answers or satisfying conclusion in the end, really making us feel like we are in his shoes and just as confused as he is. Then the question becomes how much of what we saw was real or just created in James's mind. I feel like at least some of the basic beats did happen, but then it's all filtered through James's perspective. In a way, every person that we see and things that happen are actually his own creation, reminding us again of Nora and her mention of things in reality becoming figments of her mind. This is probably most important when digging into his temporary sidekick Alice. When trying to figure things out, I was confused initially as I saw that no one is actually credited as playing Hannah, 
yet we do see her in two different tapes, albeit in extremely low quality. And I was like, huh, that's weird. Then I paused and got right up in there, you know, one of these numbers, and I was like, wait a minute, that actually looks like Alice. This was confirmed by the director in the commentary, literally the only thing that was addressed story-wise. Alice and Hannah are played by the same actress. Then there's yet another layer when it comes to Sally. We saw at the end that kind of weird cut from it being Alice to becoming the android, kind of confusing the two in the way. But this also happens way back at the beginning, didn't even notice this until I was editing the video, before James has even seen the intrusion tapes. This informs us that even from now, he has been influenced by this image, and it seems that Sally is an incarnation of Hannah, perhaps a representation of the underlying horror and terror that James faces when trying to confront what happened in the past. This makes me think that Alice was a kind of incarnation of his wife, and I would say based on the few details James remembers, like the car and the bridge, that Hannah took her own life, but why? What would push her to that? Then I remembered what she told him regarding her previous relationship that was abusive. If Alice is an avatar for Hannah, then perhaps she's actually referring to their own relationship. I'm not sure about the underage girls thing, that would change things a lot, but just not good, you know? This would be a real reason to compel her to take her own life, and also would add a lot more to the baggage of James's situation. It's like no wonder he wants to believe that something else was responsible for Hannah. He couldn't bear that guilt. That's why he was so committed to this crazy conspiracy. It's the only way that he could deal with what he did. Oh boy, now I'm starting to sound like James really going down the rabbit hole there. But this stuff is in there on purpose and this would really help us to understand James's motivation into madness. That brings us to the conclusion of this ending explained for Broadcast Signal Intrusion. Don't forget, before we go, you can send me requests for any movies or TV shows you'd like to see me explain by sending them my way on any of my social media accounts at Foundflix. What did you guys think of Broadcast Signal Intrusion and its ending? What do you think it all meant? Let me know your thoughts down in the comments below. Make sure to like, subscribe, and follow. Thanks for watching Foundflix. See you next time.